Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please turn to Psalm 131. And uh, we're going we're gonna to finish up the ascending psalms tonight, the last four of the psalms or songs of ascents that we've been studying over the past several weeks. And uh, again, these psalms, remember, they represented our, just our going up as uh, uh, they actually represented Israel's going up to Jerusalem at the feast times. And it represents us as believers Sort of gather, as we gather together in our times of worship, as we gather together as a body, it's, it, it, we can relate to this because we do things now as a corporate body. We, tonight we had corporate prayer. We get together for corporate worship. We get together to, to study His Word. We get together to serve, uh, to serve one another, to serve the community. So there are so many things, there are so many aspects of us as a body working together and these songs of ascents give us just a, a picture of the nation as they did things as a, as a group corporately to worship the Lord. And so we see here um, as we finish up in these ascending psalms, uh, we see in this first psalm, in Psalm 131, how the psalmist, how David sort of exposes his heart to us. We get to see a little bit of his, I, I guess we could call it David's prayer closet. We get to see those intimate things that he had with the Lord that really aren't, aren't really meant for public consumption. And, you know, there are some things that we go to the Lord with that we wouldn't want public. And so we, we need to be thankful that the Lord receives us, receives us in those things. And we can go to Him with anything. And so uh, it might be, it might be a, a, a sin that you're, you're caught up in that you just can't overcome and, and you just go to the Lord and you cry out to Him. This psalm really speaks to the other side of it, as we'll see. The, we'll see here that because God knows our heart, God knows David's heart, He could only communicate certain things just to God. So we get to see, we get like a bird's eye view into that intimate communion that David had with the Lord. So in verses 1 to 3, a song of ascents of David, O Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. So David here is not only the author, but he's also the subject of this psalm. He says things to the Lord that um, as, as a child of God, we wouldn't really dare say to other people. But David says it to the Lord. He mentions four character traits that represent his heart, how he sees his heart 
before God. And um, if we, when we go through these, you'll see why these were things that were really reserved to, uh, to that time between he and the Lord. Verse 1 mentions, my heart is not haughty. So it's almost here David is proudly proclaiming his humility, which is difficult to do. You know, if we, if we say we're, very pr- we're, very humble, we're a very humble person, it's almost prideful of us to do that. So before men, it's a tough thing to do. Before God, he knows our hearts. So God will know when David says, my heart is not haughty, my heart is not proud, he's saying. He's, he, and God will know that he's speaking the truth. God knows the heart. If, if we know where we stand in our walk with him, we can confidently declare to him that we're not, so to speak, a legend in our own mind, but we're humble in a way that pleases him. You know, and that's a mindset that as Christians we need to have. Why? Because we're followers of Jesus Christ. You know, in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, let, let's see what, what the mind of Jesus was about, what, what his, his character was. Uh, Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even, even the death of the cross. So, listen, our, our humility can never, can never come close to the humility that Jesus Christ uh, showed. But we should be aspiring to that, to that humility. And David here says, I'm not, my heart is not lifted up. My heart is not haughty before you. And then he goes on and he says, nor are my eyes lofty. David's saying he doesn't look to things which would satisfy his flesh, but he looks to the things that would please and glorify God. What do we fix our eyes upon? Is it the things of this world or is it the things of God? So are our eyes lofty before the Lord? Are they looking for some grandiose thing or are they just humble and looking to please and glorify God? And then he goes on and says, neither do I concern myself with great matters. You know, just simple things. I believe that David here was saying, it's not the great things, the important, so-called important things of the world. He says, I leave those to the so-called important men of the world. We find our significance in the simple things like faith in God and and caring for our family and being trustworthy in our jobs and and those simple things are the things that God sees and that God understands where our heart is. So David here is saying, I don't concern myself with the great matters. Now think about that. He was king. You know, and and yet he understood that really the important things for David were the simple things his relationship with the Lord above all. You know, a man after God's own heart. And then he goes on and he says, the fourth characteristic that he he professes to God, he says, nor with things too profound for me. So he finds the greatest joy in serving. And 
same thing should be for us. We should find the greatest joy in doing sort of the lowliest things and serving others, you know. And God counts all service towards others with the same importance, whether it's whatever it might be. You know, we may look at it as menial. We may look at it as unimportant, but God sees it. He sees our hearts, and he sees all service to others as important. Then he goes on in verse 2 and says, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So David here is expressing his maturity now, his growth in his relationship with the Lord. You know, where he came, it, it came a time for David where he could really truly trust in the Lord. You know, are we there? You know, like a, a child who gets to the point where he understands that his, his mother will, will provide his needs. As he's being weaned, he knows that he can, you know, he can trust that all of his needs will be provided for. And so David is, is sort of saying to God, God, I, I trust you. My soul is quiet before you. I'm not concerned about things. I know you have my best interest at heart. I can truly trust in you. And so we need to get to that point of maturity in our relationship with the Lord that, that we know that he, he always has the best for us. It's a sign of growth. It's a sign of contentment in whatever the Lord has in store for us. And then the, the prayer of, of David sort of moves from his personal prayer closet to the nation. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Now he's, he's sort of saying, as I, as I trust in God, as I hope in the Lord, as I'm humble before him, as, I don't, as I'm not lifting my eyes up to lofty things or going for those great, great things in this world, I, I pray that the nation does the same thing. I pray that the nation's heart is set upon God. And boy, do we, we just prayed that tonight, you know, in our time of corporate prayer, that, that we pray for our leaders, we pray for our nation, we pray for wisdom, we pray that they get saved and that they, and that they focus on God and what God's desire would be for this nation. How much greater our nation would be if we really focused on the Lord and our leaders did the same thing. Uh, Psalm 132, we'll move on. This is the longest of these last few Psalms. And we're going to go back and forth to, uh, to show you the historical context that this Psalm was written about. It. We, we're going to see references in 1 Samuel. We're going to see references in 1 uh, Chronicles. And um, we're going we're gonna to see where David was um, as, he's, as he's writing this psalm. David, a little background, was, was to be the one to establish a dwelling place for God in Jerusalem. And when this promise was sort of coming to completion, he rejoiced and worshipped the Lord. But until then, David was restless. And David was discontented. You know, he, he, he knew that that there, there needed to be a place that the people could come and they could gather in God's presence. And that hadn't happened yet. And no, although it's not until his son Solomon builds the temple, David began the work of establishing Jerusalem as the center of worship for the people of God. And it, it connects, this psalm connects that, that 
covenant that God made with David, with the new covenant. It goes actually from, from uh, history to out to eternity, this psalm. So we'll jump in here um, for the first uh, three verses or four verses. A song of ascents. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. So until I find a place for the Lord. So he's saying here, he's making a vow before God. And we do the same thing many times, I'm sure. We make vows to the Lord. We see it throughout the scriptures that certain men made vows to the Lord. Now, certain vows we make before God are, are uh, impossible to fulfill. And so a vow in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But God will bring to pass those things which he wills, and it will be in his way, and it will be in his timing. Sometimes our vows can be just misguided or even just too ambitious. Remember, Jacob made a vow to God at Bethel in, G in Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22. It says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you, have, that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob's vow, you know, Jacob was a funny guy. He, we, we could see his good points and his bad points. They were all exposed in the, in the account in the Old Testament. And Jacob's vow was, was well-intentioned. But look at the beginning of that vow. It says here, if God will be with me and keep me in this way. It's, he's sort of making a deal here with God. You know, Jacob was kind of a deal, a deal maker. And sometimes we can do the same thing. We can say, God, okay, if you do this, I'll do this. You know, how many times have we, have we done that with the Lord? You know, it was uh, the vow that Jacob made was kind of based on Jacob's hope that God would be faithful. Well, God is always faithful. God, we don't have to wonder if God's going to fulfill, fulfill his end of the bargain. He always does. It's us that, that are unfaithful sometimes. So, you know, Jacob, Jacob says, if you'll be with me, Lord, if you'll keep me in this way, if you'll give me bread to eat, if you'll provide all my needs, then I'll make you my Lord. You know, God... God will always be faithful. We just need to be obedient. We just need to follow his ways. So David goes on in Psalm 132, until I find a place for the Lord in verse 5, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle and let us worship at his Footstool. So what they're talking here about the presence of the Lord as represented in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, there were times in, in that whole period in history that the Ark was, was in the possession of, the, of, of Israel and there were times that it was captured by Israel's enemies and it was out of their possession. And remember, they, 
they kind of misused the Ark of the Covenant many times. So David here is saying, I will, I will provide that dwelling place for you, that place where we can go and worship you. He was determined to find a suitable place to worship the Lord and to house the Ark of the Covenant. 1 Samuel 7 tells us of the return of the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel after it was taken by the Philistines. And, you know, we learned lessons through those times. If you, you know, you go back and you listen to the messages that Pastor Joe gave on First and Second Samuel and, um, and into, the, into the Kings, you'll see the lessons that we learned. The lessons there are that it wasn't the physical presence of the ark. Remember, because, because sometimes we can focus on the physical things. And I, I think that's why God, one of God's commandments was to not make graven images so that we wouldn't focus on the physical things because it says in John 4 that God is spirit, right? And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's a matter of where your heart is before the Lord. It's not about the physical things. David's intentions were to give the ark a proper place for worship but the ark became an idol to the people. Instead of worshiping God, they worshiped the, the, the physical ark. And so there was, there was a, always a problem there. He goes on in verses 8 and 9, Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your, sa let your saints shout for joy. I'm, I, I'm starting to see here in this psalm where they're speaking of the Ark of the Covenant, but wouldn't we want lo the Lord to sort of rest in us, to take up residence, so to speak, in our hearts, to find a place where he can just, he can dwell and, and he can do his work in our hearts. God, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, dwells within each believer. We don't have to travel to a central location, a place of worship to be with God because he abides with us as his church. Now we gather together corporately to worship him together and that's a good thing. But our individual relationships with the Lord don't depend on something physical. His resting place, so to speak, is within each of us if we open our hearts to him. Revelation 1.6 it says, and has made us kings and priests to God and to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The Bible calls all believers priests. Those who have given the, been given the righteousness of Christ because of our faith in him. You know, we represent God to the world around us. That's what, that's what our job as a priest is. That we represent God to the world around us. And this should make us rejoice. It says in verse 9, let your saints shout for joy. For your, for your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Verse 10 here is a prayer, like a plea almost, that God will fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament in sending his Messiah. And we know that this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
the awesome prophecy and messianic message in the following verses, we see, we see also that historical account of God's covenant with David and his descendants. He says here, for your servant David's sake, D David is praying, do not forget your promise, your promise of your anointed. That word anointed in the Hebrew is Mashiach or Christ, the anointed one. In 2 Samuel, I'm going to give you some historical context here. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 17, look at this promise. Look at the covenant that God makes with David. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When all your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, he's speaking of David here, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. I love that. I, first the Lord says to David, I will build you a house, and then he says, you, one of your descendants will build me a house. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Verse 15, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Remember, Saul was the king before David. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan was the prophet at that time, went before the king spoke to David and told him, this is the promise, this is the covenant that God has made with you and your descendants forever. Notice in verse, in verse 11, it says that God will build David a house. God will build David a house. Although David desired to establish that permanent worship place for God, God would instead build a kingdom through the line of David that would be everlasting. The Messiah would be the one whom the kingdom of God, on whom the big kingdom of God would be built. Isn't that amazing? You know, as we desire to serve the Lord, as we desire to bless Him, He wants to bless us. You know, He sort of turns the tables on us. And He says, you, you can bless me, but you'll never out-bless me. I'm going to bless you more. And we see that. We see David's th the throne established forever. We see the Messiah come through David's lineage. Ver, uh, one, verse uh, 11 through 13 now of Psalm 132. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion he has, he has desired it for his dwelling place. He goes on and, and reiterates here that promise, that covenant that he made with David, that his descendants would sit on the throne forevermore. Zion refers to the earthly city of Jerusalem. God will set up his kingdom, which has been his plan and his desire for all of human history. It'll be an everlasting peace that the world has never seen. There has never been a time in world history 
that has been totally peaceful. There's always been some war going on in some part of the world throughout human history. But we will see that there will be peace, true peace. It will be an everlasting peace that the world has never seen. And it will be the answer to our continued prayers for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And that will take place. The Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, will rule, rule and reign and we can rest in that peace. That will be so awesome. He goes on in verses 14 through 18. This is my resting place forever. Here I dwell, for I have desired it. it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed, and his enemies I will clothe with, clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Notice there, my anointed he is capitalized. He's speaking of the future reign of Jesus Christ. Speaking of the promise that God has made throughout the scriptures. You know, there are so many, so many instances, so many references to Jesus, the, those messianic psalms, the prophetic books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, all of the passages that point toward, toward uh, Jesus Christ, His first coming and His second coming, and into eternity. I want you uh, to look at a, a little bit of an extensive passage in Zechariah just to give us a little bit of a picture of what the Old Testament has to say. In Zechariah 14, Behold, uh, starting in verses 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from that city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. As he fights in the day of battle, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal, Yes, you shall flee as you, sh as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus my Lord God will come on all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, ne neither day nor, nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Now listen to those verses. It sounds confusing. There won't be light. There will be light. There won't be light. The light will be the light of Jesus. It will be the, the glory of the Lord that will shine in that time. And in that day, it will be living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. 
half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And there will be no drought. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name and his name one. And all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon south of Jerusalem. It will be beautiful and lush. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it. And listen, no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. What a day. What an awesome, awesome day that we look forward to. See, David was, received the promise. You know, David received the promise through his line that the Messiah would come. And then, boy, he, he probably didn't even realize what it, was, what, it, what it really meant. And then as those prophecies unfolded, and we get more and more of a picture of what it's like, how, how awesome it is, how majestic Jesus Christ will put an end to the rebellion of man and set up his millennial reign as well as, the, as his eternal kingdom. There will be one king who will rule righteously and peace on earth will finally be a reality. Amen? Uh, we're going to just go through Psalm uh, 133 and 134. They're, they're short ones. Uh, Psalm 133. Dwell on 132 for a while though. I don't want to really, I, I mean, we're going to get through a couple more, but dwell on just the thoughts of that, of that psalm. Really, really beautiful. Psalm 133, a psalm of national and spiritual unity. I wanted to speak of this one too because this is something that we always, always, always pray for. Unity amongst God's people. God's desire here is restated and it's stated throughout the Old and New Testaments. He wants believers to live in harmony with one another. What an awesome sign to the world that under the banner of Jesus Christ, we can all love one another. You know, with so much hatred in the world, we can love one another. So we're jumping in here, verses, uh, well, it's only three verses. So a song of ascents. Of David, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So remember the context of, this, of these ascending psalms that as a group, uh, the, the nation would travel up to Jerusalem for their feasts. We worship together. You know, we gather together. It's a sign of unified hearts before the Lord. It's the sign of our, our being in one accord before God. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're commanded to love one another. And it's expected that we love one another. In John 13, 35, it says, By this all will know, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Are we showing the world Jesus Christ through our love for one another? Or do we kind of, we look like the world, we backstab and talk about one another and gossip and things like that? Or do we set ourselves apart from those things? The Hebrew word here for brethren gives us the idea of ancestry 
traced back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I love the New Testament picture of a child of God. It's sort of, it's more inclusive, it's more expressive. And the blessings that come along with that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, it says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, who are probably most of us, by faith. Remember, we were grafted in. By faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed, so that those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So we're gra- we, as if you're a Gentile, if you're not a, uh, from a Jewish background, uh, we're grafted into that faith by, by uh, what Abraham has done. We're a son of God, and we're a son of Abraham. So we're brothers and sisters. And that's what, this, that's what this psalm is trying to express to us. The anointing of Aaron as priest, as an example of unity, gives us the spiritual na- nature of David's declaration in verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The anointing oil that was used and that is still used uh, in, in a lot of places was fragrant and pure and it represented God's work through believers to each other and then to the world around us. So that's that, that, that's that anointing oil that pours down uh, the beard of Aaron as, as Aaron was anointed as the priest, as the representative of God. You know, we go out into the world and we go out before one another and as one of my brothers is, is uh, most f- popular verses, 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We're the fragrance of Christ. So we bring that to one another and to the world around us. And it's refreshing like the dew of Hermon. You know, Mount Hermon supplied uh, the water to the Jordan River it's melting snow came down that mount and it re- provided refreshment and renewal to the people physically. And the love of, one, of us toward one another is sort of that spiritual blessing that we should all be renewed by, re- enriched by, and refreshed by. And then uh, moving on to Psalm 134, three verses. And we'll close out our ascending psalms. A song of ascents. Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. We see again how when we bless the Lord, he blesses us. It's just one of those things that he loves to do. This psalm represents the end of the journeying for the people of God in the, psalm, in the ascending psalms. Now they're to take everything that they've experienced, everything that they've learned during those pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Now they're to take all of those things back to their homes, back to their villages, back to their towns, back to their families, and put them into practice every day. We can see a parallel 
to us. I mean, we come and we gather together uh, to, to, you know, to worship and to, and to learn His Word and to study and to fellowship. But we need to take what we, what we hear, we need to take what we learn, and we need to bring it back to our houses, back to our jobs, back to our communities, and put it into practice. You know, one last time, they lift their hands to the Lord in worship and praise. We're called to bless the Lord and to give Him glory. And as a unified body of believers, we glorify Him every time we gather together like, like we're doing tonight. And our hearts are to be humble and, and uh, before Him. And our motives need to be pure before Him. And then in turn, in verse 3, it says, And the Lord who made heaven and earth will bless you from Zion. He blesses us when we glorify Him. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.